1: Hi, my name is Mohamed Khan. I'm the CEO of New Heights. New Heights is a neuroceutical company, uh, one of the first based in the UK. Um, my role there is to uh, secure the sales and secure the investment. I'm part of the Inspiring Leadership series. And on that note, I'll hold, hand you over to our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks to carry on.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Mohammed. Lovely to have you on the series, and I've, I've always been very interested in this area of nutrition, health, well-being, and we had a fascinating conversation before we started this mm-hmm. one about how difficult it is to get uh, nutrients into the body, and the way you've designed something which can do that, and I'm really excited for you and for your team with that, and the fact that, you, you know, you're a self-starting entrepreneur, and now mm-hmm. people are starting to invest in you, and this mm-hmm. great idea, so well done on that. Thank you. Thank um, you. Would you tell us a bit more about your current role in the business and let's go then after that maybe just take a, make two or three minutes to tell us about that and then let's go back to your your life journey and how you began out to become the man you are now doing this amazing work so firstly tell us about what's going on in your current role
1: okay so in my current role, the majority of my time is spent uh, securing investment really uh, we need that to get to the next level of where we want to where we want to be uh, so <laughs> In the last six months, I have probably spoken to at least 50 investors of some shape or form. And we're working on about a 10% where we're getting to the point where maybe two or three of those are now ready to invest in us. And that, that's a good place to be. Um, I've also had to build the team. And it's very hard to build a team when it's just a concept because a lot of people have a lot of thing, other things to do in their life. So I had to explain that we are at this point in our journey. We're getting close to the investment, and when that happens, everybody who's had faith in me and in the and in the concept, I will I will have them on board, and I will reward them very very well as well.
0: That's a really good way of doing it, and I, I do think for people to have skin in the game, and that's the way I tend to do it with some of the startup companies I work with. I. I have a retainer, but I also have skin in the game because mm-hmm. if they do well, because I've helped them lead, yep. um, we all do well, but if they bomb, uh, it's probably partly my fault for not helping them have a good team around them and working together. Mm-hmm. But take, take me back now to the young Muhammad, um, you uh... know, family and background and your, the, the values that you have today and where they came from, parents, mm-hmm. teachers, whatever. Just, just
1: 10 minutes, take me through a bit of your life story. I'm interested um so I, I had to think about this i had a, i had a very happy you know upbringing when i was a child i'm not one of those who would say i had it rough or even if i did i didn't notice it because i, I was ha- i was such a i was always a happy kind of child when i was growing up um all, all i can remember when i was growing up in a household of seven I mean, including myself there was seven siblings so there's five five sisters and myself and my other brother so there was two brothers and five sisters. It was, a, it was a big, happy, noisy household. Um, and was, as, as with everything else, there were days when I'd get on with sister number two and not with sister number three, and etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, and we just cracked on. Um, I was never, ever <laughs> I can't remember, ever been been uh, mollycoddled by my mum or my sisters, never with my sisters. no chance. I, I was made to work like everybody else. And they, I've got three elder sisters and they really put me through the mill. And they, they turned me into the person I am now, which is, um, I, 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 don't, I don't do the, do the, the macho thing. I, it's just not something part of me. Uh, and we were always taught to, to work hard. Uh, that was something that my, my mom used to instill within us. Considering she'd never been to university school or anything, she always insisted that we worked hard, you know, worked hard. And the other one was just be honest. Don't, don't try and be something that you're not. And certainly don't make up things that you're not either. Just, just be honest. So life, life for me was, um, it was, it was a household where you didn't have, you didn't really have places to go and be by yourself. There was just too many people there. There was nine people in a household. We had six bedrooms. Everybody had, everybody had somewhere you know, where, where you'd think that they could go to, but you couldn't. Um, and then life for me turned slightly upside down where my dad was diagnosed with. Um, he, had, he had tuberculosis before I was born. And, and then it turned into a full-blown um, respiratory cardiac problem. Uh, and I, mean, I was 10 when that started. By 15, uh, he'd passed away. But for those five years in between, he was, he was it was it it just felt like a lodger living in the house he he didn't participate in many things with me i almost became head of household when i was 10 11 um, and when he did pass away i had to i had i had a i had to look after my mom and two younger sisters um did i think of it as a burden no i i i look back on it now and it, it sh- certainly sharpened me when it came when it comes to work and what have you because I I remember I would I would have to when I was 15. Um, my my dad had um, secured a lot of loans against the house when he was trying to set up his business and what have you. And I remember I'd I'd have to miss school <laughs> and go and sit with solicitors. Now, this is a 15-year-old trying to negotiate to to make sure his assets were 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 kept. And we had a we had a roof over our house because he'd used the house as being the collateral. Mm. So when I when I tell my when I tell my teachers, they they never used to believe me. They used to think I've just skived off school. And when I used to tell them, no, I'm sitting with a solicitor to make sure we div we do have a house, so I can come to school. So I I was head of household when I was fifteen. Um, um, I had two younger sisters I had to look after. Um, my mom, she I mean bless her, she always she always tried to learn English as best she can, and she was really good at it. But I I, I was the one who was you know press gang to go into solicitors and what have you. So from 15 onwards, I, I, I've known about, you know, litigation, uh, legislation, all those things. So wow. I, I never thought it was going to be something that, you know, um, you know structured my life. But it did. Mm. It did. Um, I, I think when, when I was 16, uh, <laughs> I, I decided to go to sixth form. I don't know why. I mean, I think it was just the thing to do at the time. And um, I, I, I was always good at football, but I never thought that. Football would come knocking on my door until until I had a six four match, and I remember I was playing out of position. I I, I normally used to play midfield, uh, and, but they put me as um, a wing back. And um, my attitude towards people I used to play football with at the time was, if if you you know if you if you're not if you can't you know mix it with everybody, I, I don't you know don't bother turning up. I mean you just you you're just a body on the pitch. I don't need you. And I was, res- I reluctantly went to wing back. <laughs> and I remember I had the best game I ever played. And I was actually marking the guy who was then the uh, UK schools 110 meter hurdles champion. And he didn't get a look in, he didn't get a sniff because I was so wound up. I was like, I was like, I was let loose onto a pitch. And I was so wound up that he never got a look in. And in those days, you know, you got remember 35 years ago, you could clatter somebody and put him, ball, and everybody into the stand. And I did. And I did. And from there, um, I got I got asked to come down to West Bromwich Albion. And I didn't know at the time I was the only Asian ever to go to do that, even a trial. I was the first one to even get a trial with a company, with a team. So football for the next couple of years played a part in my life. But the one one thing I do regret is I wish I'd had a mentor to help me through the football because during the 80s um, you can imagine that it was tough being of my enthe- my ethnicity it wasn't easy mm. uh, and i i couldn't relate to anybody there's nobody i met in four years of playing that i could relate to and i, I did go off the rails a little bit you know <laughs> i got a bit arrogant when i went to germany to play football and i you know they wanted to put me in the second team which is that i it's only now i know it's, i it's i know it's the norm to go into the second team For me, if that was I'm a failure, I mean I've come all the way from England to go and sit in the second team. I don't mean I'm not gonna do that. So I went on strike. You know, as a 19-year-old, I went on strike. And you know, if I'd known what I know now, I would have said to my younger self, look, it's only 12 weeks, and they'll put you in the first team. Don't mess it up. So I've had to learn through things like that, but I don't see it as a disappointment. I don't see as, you know, I don't see as yeah, if this but that it, it, it happened so what and that those sort of experiences forged who I was and that's who I've been I, I, I remember on the I remember when I was 17 I had to I left school with one O level and that was maths because that's the only subject I really liked and I had to retake them the next year at sixth form and um, the day that I had to sit uh, three exams was the day that I had to I had to, at seventeen, um, bury my sister. She'd oh, been hit, she'd been hit in a road traffic accident, and I remember I'm I, so was given, sorry. I was given the uh, it's uh, you know when I think about it now I think I don't know how the seventeen year old did it because I, I couldn't do it now. Uh, I was given the option of um, either sitting nine hours of exams after the funeral or coming back in November, and in my head I said, look, I'm not coming back in November. I mean, I've I've set my mind to do it now. So I sat, I sat exams from twelve o'clock until nine thirty at night, but and I passed them all. So there was something in that seventeen-year-old's grit that I look at now, and I think that's what I need in my business. I need that grit because he he's long gone, but I, I can still use that whatever that little bit of passion that in a middle-aged person can use. So mm-hmm. I I wouldn't say there was one one. Um, one absolute turning point in my life but there are loads of those loads i mean i i i I, what i say to myself is i don't know how that 20 year old did that Mm. i don't know how that 17 year old did that i don't know how that 15 year old it doesn't feel like it's me i don't think it's me yeah Yeah. it's somebody else i think when i when i the reason why this came up was i remember somebody giving these giving a talk about um you know focus and what have you and it, and somebody asked for an example and i was with somebody and and she said well give an example i went how would you deal with being 17 and having to sit three exams on, you know 3 hours 3 hours 3 hours and at t- 2 hours before that you're burying your sister and it was like i remember the whole auditorium went quiet they went right let's get on to the next one <laughs> <laughs> but that
0: but that is just i just want to acknowledge it, it <laughs> I, I cannot imagine how tough that is. And having just lost a week ago, my brother who died, it's, it's, it's a very, very tough time. What, what about the, the journey before New Heights and you, you started this business? What other things have given you good business experience?
1: Um, so I, uh, I didn't, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to do was I didn't want to have a normal job until I was 30. Normal for me was, um, office work, suit and tie, you know, nine to five, blah blah, 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 So I did all sorts of weird things before that. You know, I played football and then I wanted to join the military and then I did some other weird jobs. And then at 29, I remember I thought, right, I'm getting close to that 30 and I've got to stick to my principles. And I've always tried to stick to things that I've set out. Um, so I, I ended up doing a postgrad in telecoms and physics. And I've never done telecoms in my life. I, didn't, I don't even have an undergrad In sport, I mean, in science, I have it in economics. It's got nothing to do with science. I remember I I went for my uh, university interview, and the 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 course director turned around to me and says, "Do you know what? In thirty years of doing this course, I've never had somebody with your background." He said, "He said you have you have not done you've not done computer science, you've not done engineering, and you know you haven't done maths and you haven't done physics." And I remember he took my application. He chuckled and he says. I'm about to retire next year. I'm going to let you on for a laugh.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and he let me on. Um, I went through it. I ended up working at BT. They put me on the graduate scheme there. And it was in their engineering department out in Ipswich. And I remember somebody said to me, he said, do you know you're the only person ever to work here who doesn't have a science background? And you know what? That inspired me because I met somebody who motivated me to the point where I was reading probably two books a week on engineering Wow! Wow. and and I got through the ranks and I ended up being really good at what I did and I got headhunted by a few companies uh, in the US and I ended up working Silicon Valley and I worked in telecoms at quite senior positions. I went from management to director to VP to CTO and then At 2017, I had an epiphany moment on a flight between here and um, Dubai, I think it was. Yeah, Dubai. And I thought, is this my lot? Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? And I looked at it, I thought, I I enjoy my work, but does it really give me that motivation to get up in the morning and do a bit more and focus in on things? And I had to be honest, I thought, it doesn't it doesn't it was good while it lasted i went to silicon valley saw all the things that i ever wanted to see and now i needed to do something else and i remember i took a leap of faith i gave up a very good career and i and i started off at rock bottom um i had to do a um course i did a i did a postgrad course in sports science to learn a bit more about the area i'm going to go into um, I ended up looking after both my daughters ended up living with me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a single, I'm a single parent, no job, no career, no nothing. I- I'm late forties. You know, most of my friends thought you're a nutcase. You're an absolute nutter to do that. I mean, you must have, you, one of my friends even said to me, he says, you know, those neurosuticals you're making, you should start taking them before you make a decision like that again. <laughs> and I-, I-, I looked at it and I thought, I've always, I've always managed to, with help from him upstairs, always land on my feet. This is another one. Just, just, just crack on. Just do it. And, and I had to think about my younger days. When I was doing sports science, I had to learn about what made me tick when I was younger. And I used to take risks. I took a lot of risks. Some of them worked. Some of them didn't. You know, some of them made me lots of money. Some of them made me no money. Some of them almost bankrupted me. But you have to take risks. And I realized that that's the biggest essence of my younger years. I took risks, mm. you know, I, okay. I, and, and I ended up where I am now. And it's tough. Yes. But would I change it? No.
0: Well, that's brilliant. And let's, let's have a look at um, some of the quick fire questions I'd like to um, ask you, which is like, firstly, darkest moments and okay. proudest moments and what you learned from
1: each of those two imposters. Um, the darkest moments in, in life was um, the kind of deaths I had to deal with, people around me. Um, they were everything. I had a close friend who was stabbed to death. I had a sister who was run over by a drunk driver. Um, I had people who I never thought would die that way, died cardiac arrest, very young age. I always felt when they left, I was, I felt alone. And I almost felt jealous that they've gone because I'm here now all by myself again. This is not fair. You know, that thing used to go through my head. It's not fair. But when I look back on it, I think it was meant to be, it was absolutely fair because I learned so much from, from those people that it was incredible. So those were dark days. um, If you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I took from those things was when I meet somebody, I'd rather have two years, three years, four years of really good getting to know this person and and them adding to my life than a lifetime with somebody who's just boring. Mm. So, so that was some um, the, the the highest, proudest, without a shadow of a doubt. And you know, most people most people think, well, how can you put that one down? It was being a dad. Mm. And then I got it twice. So it was it was it was double whammy. Yeah. It was double whammy. It, it, nothing gets close to it. Nothing. Nothing no, right. gets close to it. And I remember somebody saying to me, he said, when they give that 2.5 kilograms in your hand, your life will just change. And I went, no, 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 no. I'll still do this, still. Completely changed. Yeah. My whole my whole focus was like, all right, I just need to finish this work. I need to get home. I want to get home. I need to get home. And Y- yeah yeah. day of being a dad. Without a uh, shadow of a doubt.
0: How old are your two daughters now?
1: Um, youngest one's eighteen and the oldest one's twenty-two.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, well I, I relate to that. I've got two daughters as well, and a stepdaughter and a stepson. Yep. And uh, they're all twenty-six to twenty-nine and we just married one of our daughters on wow. Sunday. So a special wow. Congratulations. day. Congratulations. Yeah, well thank you. And and thinking of you at, at that age, when you were 18, what bit of what bit of advice would you give to the young 18 year old oh. Muhammad Khan knowing what you know now yeah. what bit of advice if there's one bit of wisdom you'd give on to um, other young people listening now
1: the one the one th- the one mantra I would give if I could give to that 17 18 year old was listen and have patience mm. listen just listen the world's not against you you might have been wounded when you were younger with what happened to your dad and you felt resentful and but there are, there are good people out there, and the other one is have patience. If I could have, if I could be the mentor to my nineteen-year-old who went to Germany to play football and went on strike, I'd say, look, what's twelve weeks in a fifteen-year career? Nothing, hmm. nothing. But he's long gone. But that um, patience and listen—that's it.
0: Yeah, uh, great, great, great advice, great wisdom. I, I wish I'd taken similar advice myself at that age. Um, MQ uh, is the first of the eight components of what makes high-performing leaders uh, as part of our inspiring leadership work in our book, uh, Inspiring leadership, leadership Lessons from My Life, and my wife's book on inspiring women leaders. MQ, what, what fundamental values do you aspire to live by? So it's moral quotient. Yeah. Uh, if you have a top three, what are your top three? And what happened when you let them slip and how did you get yourself back again?
1: Um, the first one for me is... Is honesty. It, it has to be. Um, the second one is hard work, hard work, and then the last one is loyalty. If you do those three, even if it doesn't work, nobody can say that you didn't try. Yeah. You know, when, um, whenever I haven't done the honesty, or I've been put in a predict, I've put, been put in a predicament that i've i've got to pick right from wrong it it whenever i've even thought about doing the other one i i remember it was like i don't think i can live with myself you know literally i mean many years ago um i mean even when i was doing high tech i used to do entrepreneurial things i'd set up businesses with friends and what have you i remember this one particular business where we were asked to do um (laughs) Uh, this, this, we were asked to invest in a company that makes barrels for rifles, and um, he'd had something like eight million pounds worth of orders on the table. And initially, he'd said to us that this business was just, you know, sporting and you know, clay pigeon shooting, and I was happy with that. And then he mentioned and we when we did the due diligence, ninety percent of that business was arms dealing, with militaries around the world and I remember looking at it thinking I don't feel comfortable with this I really don't feel comfortable I don't really want to make a barrel which shoots around that kills a child in some faraway place I may never see that happen but for me I thought I can't do this I remember saying it to a friend of mine I said I don't I, I don't want to invest and he said but they've got eight million on their you know on their books already we only have to invest like half a million I went. To me, it didn't feel right. And, and from, from an honesty point of view, I had to be honest to myself. And I, I didn't. I didn't. And I, t- I tell this story now, uh, you know, at, at dinner parties, and they laugh. And they said, well, it was worth like 15 million. Yeah, it would have worth me 15 million after like a year. And we had 8 million on the, on the books. Uh, you know, uh, uh, possible, um, well, he had sales. I mean, I, I, could, I saw them. I went, nah, no, it's not for me. not for me. Not for me. Yeah,
0: I think as they say, a lady or a gentleman is someone who knows what they stand for, what yeah. they'll not fall for. Yeah. And, and I, I respect you for that. Next one round, PQ, uh, which is purpose, meaning and purpose. Yep. So why do you do what you're doing now? And, and what's your dharma? What's your calling? What's your vocation? Well, you know, yep. what, what is it that makes you
1: do what you do? Um, we, we've had a long tradition in my family. Uh, on my dad's side and my mom's side who have been in the military and my brother was in the air force so for me my calling has always been something to help others in a very structured planned way I was always told that plan your day that's it even if you know the world's going to end plan your day that's it and then execute on that plan Uh, and uh, just keep doing it just keep doing it and then eventually something will happen and for me my calling is I like working with other people. I really do. I get most of my, you know, people think, oh, you must get a real good buzz from, from working at new heights, making those neuroceuticals. I get a buzz when somebody who has introduced me to somebody else and said, oh, he's one of the best neuroceutical designers on the planet, and he's a top footballer. And he says that to me and I went, oh, okay, okay. It's, it's not something that I, I go out to get. Um, so that's why I like working with people and the other one is I, I love um, mentoring and getting the best out of somebody um, I've had the privilege of coaching some really good athletes and it's, it's fun that years after you've finished coaching them, when you go to a awards dinner and they ask you to sit on the head table and then people ask you say, who's that you know, because all the top athletes are talking to you and they go, and you can hear people whispering who's that, and that's because I dedicated time, and I knew that there was a raw material that could be really good at what they did. Brilliant. That, that's the combination. You give time, and there's raw material.
0: Yeah, well, that from, from the athletes that you've helped and your own footballing um, career, um, health quotient is the next one. So mm. mental and physical health and wellbeing, which of course is the area now moved into. Yep. Um, What's your what's your top advice on mental health, physical health, and well-being?
1: Um, for mental health, one of the biggest ones that we found when I had to do sports psychology and sports science, I mean, as part of sports science, routine. You need a routine in your life. You have to have a routine. The reason why routines work is whenever you're feeling a bit down, there's something that you have to do in that day. There's something you have to go and address. You know, there's something... Needs to be done, and it takes your mind off things that are beyond your control. You know, it, they're, they're things that are there but are not going to help in any shape or form. Like worrying has no real help, health value at all. Worrying um, anxiety is like a friend of mine said, he said, anxiety is thinking too much of the future and not addressing the present, and depression is thinking too much of the past without addressing the present. So you need to live in the present. You need to live in in here and now. So that's one on the mental health. On the physical, even on days when you're not feeling good, go and do that 20-minute walk. Even if it's raining, snowing, whatever, just get that thing done. And it will become part of a routine. And it will feel as though the same as those who drink coffee or who binge on chocolate or whatever they do. It becomes the norm for them to do every day. And that's what you want. You know, I, I... I, I, I looked at this question uh, earlier today and I thought, why is it that I, I, I've, I've trained almost every day since I was 16 and it was twofold. A, it helped me stay focused so I didn't go down a slippery slope, which I could have, and B, I actually feel really good after I've exercised. And it, it, it's, just, it's just the norm now. It's just the norm. For uh, when it comes to uh, well-being, I, I would look at um, one of the things we always say is it's easier to add to a diet than to take away. So instead of you taking away things which you might not think are healthy, add something which is. Over a period of time, you will you will naturally just get rid of the ones that are not, and that's the best way to do it. That's the best way to do it. For me now, hitting like middle age, and and you know pretty much sit sit behind a desk all my all, all day. One of the things I always do is I I try and only have two meals a day. Um because I've worked out that even 2800 calories for me sitting behind a desk the likelihood is I'm not going to be able to burn all that off. So I'm well restrict it and I feel a lot better for it. So, so those are my tips. You know,
0: yeah. Uh, great advice. No, I've um I've done 150 days of intermittent fasting which yep. essentially I'm I miss out breakfast yes. um, and, and uh, first meal of the day is around about 11 o'clock mm-hmm. to 12 o'clock, which is a, a really good, healthy, fully nutritional lunch with, you know, um, some fish and lots mm. of vegetables, and maybe some rice, and and then a good evening meal, all finished ideally by about 7, 7.30, mm-hmm. so that you're not sleeping on, on nope. that. No, great stuff. Great stuff. Okay. So moving on to the next quick question. Um, we're going to do emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence. What would be your top tip about building rapport with people? You know, you're having to get people to relate to uh, you, to buy into what, who you are and what you're doing.
1: Um, one of the things I found uh, in all of the, whether, whether I work for somebody else or I'm doing new heights or I've worked with some of the other businesses I've set up, bring people in at the early stage. Bring them in and explain what the vision is. So everybody knows that this is what we're going for. Um, if there's any objections, you know, say it now. I, I always run an open ship. If you have an issue, just say it. And I give you a classic example. Um, I've had this recently with New Heights, where one of my one of my uh, one of one of the one of the members of the team I thought was seeing things in the in a different way to everybody else. What I realized was. It was it was because I hadn't explained a particular aspect of the business, so he had had to make it up himself. Thinking, I think it's this, but but the reality was it wasn't. So one of the things I always say: open, open, open house. And if you can't take if you can't take criticism, don't don't bother becoming a CEO. Just don't, because you you'll end up being almost an autocratic leader. Hmm. It's just you you your way of the highway. Forget it. Forget it. I take regular advice from everybody before I make a decision on any aspect of new heights, any, and, and I've turned, we've turned down investments from, from big places because it didn't fit with our ethos. And I give you a classic one. When I first started uh, when I started looking for funding for for new heights, I looked at it as my, you know, my tech days and I was looking at it very much like a mercenary three years and I'm out of here. My team convinced me that I should make it that other members of their family, my family, could work there. Mm. And they said, why don't you just become a chairman when you want to leave? You'll get your salary. They'll give you your bonuses and we can run it. And I went, I've never, I never, if I didn't have that view of changing, it would have been mercenary. Three years and we're out of here. And, yeah. and I remember, I remember the youngest member of the, my, my chief scientist, she's only 28. She said, what will I do after three years? when you sold up shop. I mean, and I looked, I went, well, I'll give you 50 million. What more do you want? She goes, but I want to work. I enjoy it. And I went, well, you can go and set up your own company with 50 million. She goes, I like working with you guys. And then it dawned on me. Then it dawned on me. Maybe I should build something further down the line.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Which takes me on nicely to the next one, which is cultural or collective intelligence, wow. the, you know, making the most of the group you have. But also with the tough experiences you had in those 80s, with racism um the whole area of diversity equality and inclusion and creating a yeah. healthy diverse culture was yeah.
1: what's your top tip here um so I, I was i was always taught from when i was younger when i was younger in my life that you you treat everybody with respect regardless regardless my mom my, my mom my mom would never stand for it if if i'd come out with any sort of um, diversity stance against something which I knew was right but I just want to be awkward and racism no chance <laughs> I, I would get fried in my house literally um I think the best way that I found to to become culturally aware with other people's cultures was when I traveled I traveled I've, I've visited 60 countries in my life I've enjoyed every single one of them everything good from that culture I've taken on board made my culture better anything bad in my culture, I've got rid of it. And that makes me, when I speak to other people now, I always try and speak with a level of equality first. And then, you know, I you know, I owe you respect because you're better than me. And the other thing is, whenever I, whenever I look to build a team, I always build it on, I have a gap, I need to fill it. I don't care where that person comes from. I literally do not care. I did have one particular investor who said to me he says about inclusion and diversity he said um we love the idea but there's something wrong with the team I went what's wrong with the team they're hand picked they know what they're doing they're not juveniles and he said maybe we should take this offline I went okay fine whatever so we had a conversation afterwards and I said he said we'd love to invest but there's just something wrong here I went okay Let's just let's not kid about. Tell me exactly what the issue is. And he said, "Okay, we would like to bring in a white middle-class Caucasian to run your business, and we would like to bring a chief scientist to do the same as well with the same background. And we want you to become a, I think it was um, advisory, advisory formulator. And she, he said, we want to sack your chief scientist because she doesn't fit the bill. Now, my my core cool team at, at New Heights is." There's myself, there's um, Andy, who's my advisor. He's been, a, he's been in corporate for years. Um, I've got Peter, who's who's been the CEO of many startups at Oxford University. I've got Dr. Rahmani, who's just finished doing a PhD in encapsulation of insulin. And I've got to, Dr. Raj, who used to work for some of the biggest companies around the world. Uh, people like Unilever, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Cadbury's, et cetera. I said, you can't get a better team for what we need. But I was told to shift it. And, I, and, and the remit was, if you shift these people out, we'll give you the, the investment. I went back to my team and I said, I don't care what you guys say, I'm not doing it. I, I'd, sooner, I'd sooner sit on the street as a pauper than, than take that deal. And, and I, remember, I remember one of the people in the team said to me, said, are you really, seriously? I went, yeah. It does, I said, I've walked away from bigger deals than this. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to shift my shift my stance on diversity and equality just because some somebody doesn't like the color of the skin. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I, and I said I remember I had to write a letter through the to, through my solicitor, and you know in a nice way it says "crack on, we're not we're not we don't want to invest. We, uh, sorry, we don't need your investment. We're, we're okay." Because I've stuck to that stance and I've been honest and upfront with all my team. We've got to a point now where we we're, we're close to starting, which is unbelievable in, the, in less than six months
0: <laughs> yeah that's, that's fantastic and, and well done on that and and that's the, my next question really was you know you're close to starting in less than six months from from startup what have you learned through all the different jobs you've done uh,
1: about one tip about resilience um get up every morning write down all your tasks and crack on mm. there you go there you go there you go just crack on and it when, when you get when you get disappointment I know this is a cliche it's not personal crack on
0: yeah
1: literally don't let it affect you become very thick skinned to it don't don't try and you know psychoanalyze what somebody said to you move on yeah move on you you'll go completely bonkers if you do
0: yeah no great advice okay um next one brand Uh, When was the last time you had some 360 feedback from about 20 different people?
1: Um, About five years ago, when I first left. I had it it from, I think it was, I asked everybody at the time. Uh, (laughs) um, I had both, I I, I got the, too focused to the point it's scary. Uh Um, Ruthless was one that somebody said to me. Um... Loyal was the people who were part of the team who I kept. Uh, what was the other one? Uh, Big softy was was what some of the some of the people I asked. They said he's got this hard exterior exterior persona, but inside he's, he's like he's like you know he's like blinking. Yeah, he's like melting chocolate. I mean, that's what, the reason why that happened was because I used to do scouts and I did a number of voluntary work and that. And I, and I had asked these people honest opinion about me, where I could improve on that. And they said, Oh, explain it a bit better. Not so linear. And I'd think, well, how many times can I explain the same thing (laughs) before you don't get, you're just not getting it. And then in conversation, somebody said to me, they said they, they saw me with my daughters and we were putting up tents. And, and I remember saying to somebody, I said, look, you've got to get these tents up and running, man, because you've got to, you've got to get everything done. There are people depending on you. There, there are children depending on you. And then two minutes later, I was hugging and kissing my daughters. And then everybody said, oh, he's, he thinks he's ruthless, but he's just a big softy. That's, you- that's,
0: that's a nice touch though. And, and which takes me on to my next one, which is legacy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: What would you, after you died, and you've seen many mm. of your family die, and uh, it's been tough, what would you like your legacy?
1: How would you like people to describe you when you're um, I had to think about this, and I was thinking, what would be the what would be the best legacy? It's actually at my funeral when all these weird people who I've worked with, who I've helped, mentored, you know, coached, etc., and they turn up, and people are going to say, where did you meet him? Or how did how did he get to meet them? And then the other one is um, just leave things that uh, it, it, it's like. The more you help people, the more the more I've mentored people, worked with people. I may not have been able to give them 100% of my time because it's hard when, you, when you're a parent and you've got children and all the rest of it. But just if they could just say that, yeah, he was okay. He was all right. He helped. He helped. He was okay. As a legacy, I'm not looking for like, you know, statues, monuments and all this other sort of nonsense. Just that is cool.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's, I, I get that. And what about, um, thank you for that. So that's sort of around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Uh, what about teams that you've been in? You know, football has teams, oh, businesses yep. have teams. You've been in, in high-tech companies, you've been a bit of CTO, you've been a bit of VP. Mm. Um, what have you done to take toxic teams and turn them around and make them into healthier teams?
1: Um, regardless, the, the, the dynamics of a team are, they're not always gonna be like you. And if they're all like you, then you're not gonna work. It's gonna be the weirdest kind of team you've ever come across. So you are gonna to get toxic characters in there. You're gonna get people who are just dare to cause problems. Um, and you have to be ruthless at times. Uh, whenever I've worked in a team where there's somebody who's constantly causing uh, friction for no apparent reason, the first thing I'd ask is, I've always tried to do one, one-to-ones. I don't like using the term to one-to-ones because that, that means it's structured, set, et cetera. I've always tried to ring them and say, look, what exactly is happening? Because what I found is a lot of friction, a lot of confrontational stances that people may have, it's because something's happening in their personal life. Something's happening which they can't stop. So yeah. it's a bit like I've, I've got to argue here, but I can't, so I'll argue over there. As long as I'm arguing, I don't care. So I always ask them because I've been through that. I've been through that where you, you, you transferable stress, as they call it. So I get to, I get to see what's happening. If I can help uh, reduce the stress in some shape or form, make it work better. Uh, I'll even give them time off. I'll work with them. If after all of that, I can't do anything, then I'll ask the $64,000 question is, do you think this is the right place to work? <laughs> do you think after everything we've tried to do, and it's not a knee-jerk reaction. Do you think either this is not the right place for you to work or do you think that we could never, ever see eye to eye so it's better that you know, we do a parting of the wave now on good terms? And I've had to do that. I've had to do that with, 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 com- with people I've worked, worked with as part of New Heights. And I've, and I've had to say that, say, look, I just don't think it's going to work. I've tried to, to incorporate you, etc., etc., but it's not working. But I always try with a, with a toxic team. Get it out in the open. What's the issue? Can we resolve it? If we can, great. If we can't, there's always a last resort. And we have to look, we have to look at it. It's part of being a CEO. It's part of a job that I don't like. I, I don't like the hiring and firing um, because I, you know, it's like one of my, one of, one of my friends said, he said, you just like a big happy, clappy family. I said, yeah, I do. Because I'm used to a big happy, clappy family. And he said, but you bring it on people who are just not, they're not even good at it. I said, yeah, we can train them. He said, he said that to everybody. So, you know, the hiring and firing is not me. <laughs>
0: but but it, it is interesting you say that, Mohammed, because um, just talking to a chief people officer earlier today who I was coaching, and he said, I really don't like the hiring and firing. No. Um, I don't mind the hiring, getting, bringing new people. Oh, in, I hate right? the firing. But, but he said, I really don't like having these difficult conversations. So, so particularly, you know, there's, there's somebody in my own team, I'm going to have to fire them. Mm-hmm. I'm really very anxious about that in anticipation of what's to come. As you say, anxiety about yeah. the, fu- the future, depression about the past, be more present. And um, I found that excellent book by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And he, he took his book's called uh, No Rules Rules, which mm. is a, a great read. And he talked about the keeper test. So if one of the team that you have working for you said they were gonna go somewhere else to a rival, yeah. Would you fight really hard, try to give them more money, um, time off, sabbatical, whatever it is, work on them, give them some leadership coach to work with them, whatever it might be, to keep them? Or would you let them go and go, good luck, I wish you every success? Mm -hmm. Because if you've got someone and you think, I'd actually let them go, I wouldn't be too fast, then why have you got them there in the first place? And he gets rid of those people early, rather Mm -hmm. than wait for the moment to come. And I haven't met many who really like getting rid of people. I've, I've worked for a few psychopaths. I worked for a general uh, who, who was a psychopath and he loved beating people up. In fact, not physically, mentally, he'd just destroy them. Uh, he made a point uh, and, and it was born out every time I saw him move and I worked for him. My predecessors, two of them had been fired. He made a point of firing two people within the first month of his new tenure to teach all the others a lesson. Didn't matter yeah. where, they, where they're going. Yeah. And I just can't stand people like that. So he's a psychopath. So, but, but at the other extreme, normal people like you don't <laughs> like to, to do it. And so they avoid it. But the question is, what is it you know now about them that you'll find out in 12 months time, but you know it already. Mm. And if you know it already, what yeah. are you waiting for? Yeah. Help them it's find their ha- happiness
1: it's elsewhere. It's true. Um, I, I had, so when I started off New Heights, I just wanted to be chief science officer. And I said, I'll, I'll give the reins to somebody else. And after four months, I realized that this, this somebody else was wholly inadequate. <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't really fire him because we, didn't, we only had a concept. So I said, you know what, I'm leaving. <laughs> and I left. And, I, and he said, well, if you leave, we haven't got a, yes, we haven't got a business, but the problem is you've been here for four months. I can't see any investment. I can't see any plans. I have no idea what we're doing and I have no idea the direction we have to do a parting of the waves. We have to do that. And, and I realized that I'm a reluctant leader. I'm a very reluctant leader. It's not something that I go out looking for power. I don't, I don't like power junkies. I'm not into that. I'm not into adrenaline junkie. You know, I'm not into any of that. Um, but what I found was in, this, in, this, in the few teams that I've been part of as a startup, if I try and just cruise along, it comes to a grinding halt. And I've realized, I thought, right, you know what? I, I, I can't do this elongated death. I've got to either step up or step out. That's why I look at it. Step in or step out. That's and step, at, step out means just leave because you're just going to get frustrated. And that's yeah. why we, That's why with New Heights, uh, we, we had a conversation and I said, you know that the CEO's role is up for grabs, right? Does anybody want it? And everybody voted, no, you should have it. I went, on what basis? Well, you know the business, you know where to get investment, and you know what you're doing. Fine, all right, crack on. That's the only time I've actually been voted in as a CEO. <laughs> Even when I've done co-founding, I've, I've never yearned for it. I've ended up doing it, but never yearned for it. And I think yeah. that's, the, that's the best type of leader, the one who doesn't yearn for power. What, what, what am I gonna get? I've only got four other people. What am I gonna be, you know, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna be building i you know, I'm not building a conglomerate.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's a very wise bit of advice. Okay, now you get advice from all over the place, but often all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders, Mm. is a lovely saying, which I fully agree with. And in the reading that you've done in the last 12 months, what what books, uh, or what one book would you recommend on leadership that you'd recommend
1: to others that you found very helpful? Um, On leadership, so I, I put it down, so on leadership, the 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 one book that I, I I read, but not not from a military background. It's not that. I, I just want to know the plans and the strategy. It ha, it has to be uh, the Art of War. Has to yeah, be the Art Sun, of War. Sun,
0: uh, Sun,
1: Tzu. Uh, Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu's Art of War is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Even when you think you're outnumbered, outgunned, his vision was always go as if you're the upper hand. Always. And I realized that from when I started doing um, going for investment. I realized, I thought, oh, hold on a minute. I shouldn't be going with the lower hand. I should be going with the upper hand saying, if you don't invest, you're going to miss out because this thing is worth X. And I've already positioned it to these companies in the US and all the rest of it. And it was brilliant. And because whenever I've, whenever I've seen people going for investment, they always go with a lower hand. Oh, please, please, please give me this. Oh, please, please, otherwise I'll die. In reality, it should be the other guy. Oh, I'll invest. Come Where do I sign? So that, that one's a brilliant one. On, on characters, I, I love history. I, I love history. I, I love, I love um, you know, one of the, my ideal job when I retire would be a curator in a museum because I'd meet people all day long and I could tell them about beautiful stories. But the one character that I've, I've read, uh, which, which was fascinating, was, um, not many people know about it, Tariq bin Zaid. Okay. Tariq bin Zaid is where we get the term gibraltar and gibraltar in arabic means the mountain of tarik now why why do i like this it's because he never he never lost a battle outnumbered outgunned doesn't matter and the one thing that i do like was one of his statements was when they when the when the moors landed in spain he burnt the ships no going back that's it when I, when I read that was when, just before I did, made my decision in 2017, no going back, we're done. It's a chapter, it was good, we move on. And that, that's what I love about that. Um, from a mental health, one of the best books I've ever read about trauma and how to deal with trauma and how to realize you're suffering from trauma is a book by um, Peter, Peter Levine, and it's called Waking the Tiger. And that book was really good because it said, it said there are 90% of the population will freeze like the, uh, the deer in the headlights, just freeze. It knows the car's coming. It will just stop. Same with, same with when, when the antelope is being chased by the lions, it'll just stop and play. And, and, and that's it. I'm, I'm giving up. The one that played dead and then had a gap when the, when the lions released the jaws and it was gone, they're the survivors. And, and it's beautiful. It's about when we, when we have a trauma, not only do we mentally f- uh, feel it, but we physically feel it. So those who see traumatic things, and I've had to do some really weird things, you know, you know, you know put, put some guy's arm together because he got amputated off because he got sliced. and all. Everybody's just watching it. You have to do something. Otherwise, you'll live the trauma later on in life. You know, if you see an accident, you have to do something. Otherwise you'll, you'll, you'll live the trauma because you'll think, I wish I would wish I could have done this. I wish I, and that's part of the trauma. So what Peter Levine says is that, that 10% of the ones who do things, you know, in a burning house, they're the ones who go in and try and pull somebody else out. I'm not saying go and do it, but do something. Otherwise the trauma will sit and it will stay there. And, and it, it's, it's like a glitch in the software. It, it, you just, it's hard to move past it. So that's a brilliant go. book.
0: No, I'm looking forward to that. Okay. And then we're at the nice uh, end of our our session. And this has been really great. I've really enjoyed it. So let's end with uh, if you just introduce yourself again, because this is going to stand at its own rights be part of this, but it'll also stand its own rights. Uh, So just tell people who you are, what you do and what your your uh, um, uh, new heights is about. And then just your two minute top tip a leadership tip that's practical that people can take with themselves. So you might've mentioned it already, doesn't matter if you have. Hi, Uh,
1: so (coughs) I'm I'm Mohamed Khan. I'm the CEO of New Heights. Uh, New Heights is one of the first neuroceutical companies here in the UK and we will be expanding into the uh, US and Europe. We make those products which are between supplements and pharmaceutical. So i give you an example. That is something like vitamin D, vitamin C. And what we do is we make them far more absorbable in the body because we put them into a little packet that the body thinks is friendly to it. And it, 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 gets absorbed. Um, top tip. If I had to give it to myself when I was younger or to anybody out there, uh, be kind to others, literally be kind to it. You don't know what trauma they're going through. You have no idea. There is no such thing as a bad child. They've gone through a trauma. There is no such thing as having somebody who's, they will say, oh, that was contrary to his character. He never does that. There's something going on. Ask him. So be kind. That's the first one I would say. Be kind. Um, enjoy the journey. Don't always look at the end part. Enjoy the journey. There are people on that journey who you'll meet who will make the goal far more easy to, to obtain. So enjoy the journey. I, I, in the past, I've been, I've been guilty of not enjoying the journey. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, just just objectives, objectives. Enjoy the journey because you'll learn a lot from that. And, and the other one is just stay focused. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember when, I, when I was working in a company in Chicago and my CEO would say, when we focus, we win. And I, I would meet him in the corridor when I, when I was in the Chicago office. And he'd ask me, he said, oh, Mohammed, what are you working on? And I'd go, well, I'm, blah, blah. and he'd just walk off what the hell kind of person is that? How rude is that? And he did, this, he did this a couple of times. As soon as I'd talk, he'd walk off. And then he cornered me once at the, co- the coffee bay, at the coffee area. And he said to me, he said, what are you working on? And I went, oh, I'm working on he, he said, I'm going to walk off again. I said, yeah, I've noticed that. You just walk off. Why do you do that? He said, because you're not giving me what you're doing in a laser-focused manner. Mm. Because you haven't understood it, that's why you're giving me the waffle to me as well. Yeah. So, so your your team's giving you waffle, and you're giving waffle to me. Oh. And I remember, and then, and I remember, I, I realized that. And then the next time I, he caught me in the corridor, he said to me, he "Said where are you working?" I said. We're working on a new investment where we're gonna raise that one point four million and then from that one point four million we're gonna raise a company that's gonna do hundred million in three years time. We went, now nah, you've got it. <laughs> he said, I'm not bothered about the rest of the rubbish. I'm no, not bothered.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for Muhammad, your time. Stay on. Thank you for your tips and your wisdom. Much appreciated. Thank you.